Our broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and modeled by God's Son. This is the beauty of becoming. He was known as the keeper of the spring. High in the Austrian Alps, this man, this old man, would tend not only the land around the spring that fed this village, but he would also take care of the wildlife in that area. It would become a wildlife refuge. And people would come in from all over Europe to see this, this postcard village, this, picture, this picturesque village in the Austrian Alps. Now, this man would, would care for everything in that place. And, and as I said, it became very, very popular, and it went on for years. The village would grow in popularity. People would come and sit at the restaurants just to look at everything around there. It was so beautiful. And then, then the village elected a new city councilman who liked numbers, and he was looking at the budget, and he said, why are we paying this old man so much money just to pull weeds? And so they fired him. And when they fired him, things were okay for a few weeks. But then when fall hit, well, the leaves would get into the stream. The branches would break off the trees and get into the stream. The stream would clog up. Those pools that were so clear and had fish, well, they would become stagnant. The fish would die. The wildlife would leave. And then there was the odor. There was this brown film that covered the water. The millwork stopped within the village the clammy fingers of disease and sickness reached deeply into the village. So eating some humble pie, the city councilman made a recommendation that they hire this keeper of the spring back, and he came back on board, and again, within a few weeks, things were back to normal. And you may say, Kip, why are you sharing that story? I'm glad you asked. Have you ever considered that what the keeper of the spring is to that village, so we are as Christ followers to this world? Think about it. If you would pull us out of our families, out of uh, our, our schools, our sports teams, out of our businesses, there should be a vacuum, and that should be a vacuum of love. We should be keepers of the spring of love. Well, such is what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. People will know us as Christ followers by the way we love. People will know us as Christ followers by the way we love. Now, it's cliche, yes. It's very simple to remember for sure, but it's very, very hard to live out. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we wrap up this series called The Beauty of Becoming. I've loved this series. It's a series in which we've looked at different attributes of Jesus, hoping that we could emulate those attributes. And I'm excited about today's teaching because we're looking at the attribute of love, specifically sacrificial love. We're going to be hanging out in one primary chunk of Scripture, John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. So turn to John chapter 13. Let me set the scene for what's happening. Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and it's Holy Week. Soon he will be going to the cross, and he's going to have one of the most important meals of his ministry. 
there are four very important meals in his ministry, three of them suppers, one of them breakfast. And each one starts larger and gets smaller and increases with intensity. The first meal is the feeding of the 5,000, which is really the feeding of 15 to 20,000 because in that time, they didn't count women and children, they only counted men. And that, that, that first big meal when he feeds the 5,000, well, they're mostly Jews. And it planted a flag that Jesus is the Messiah. It also ended his Galilean ministry. Fast forward a while later, and he feeds the 4,000, more intensity, because this time he's feeding non-Jews, known as Gentiles. And when he feeds non-Jews, that's a big deal because he's a rabbi. And he's showing them that he came for both the Jew and the Gentile. He's showing them that he came to be the bread of life. And now then, we're at the Last Supper. He's with his 12, soon to be 11. I'll talk about that fourth meal at the end of today's teaching. He's got his 12 there, and he's going to show them that he is their true feast and their true sacrifice. But first, he's got to get rid of a problem. That problem is Judas. He dismisses Judas to leave so he can share what's deep in his heart to give commands and, and, and guide, admonish, encourage his disciples, the committed 11. So the other disciples don't know that Judas is going gonna, is gonna to betray Jesus. Jesus just nods to him and he rolls out of there. So now with that, Jesus has his committed 11 and he's ready to give them instruction as well as us. Two theologians I leaned into for today's teaching, one of my heroes at Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. Tom Constable, and then at Moody Bible Institute, uh, Dr. Dr. John Phillips. With that, remember our main thought, people will know us as Christ followers by the way we love. You guys ready to go? Okay, this is a, this is a cool teaching. I'm excited about this. John 13, verses 31 and 32. Here we go. Therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Okay, hang on just a second. Every time you see glory, glorified, any version of that, circle it in your Bible, highlight it, whatever you got to do, make sure you underscore that. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Son of Man is used like 88 times in the New Testament, and it means a lot of different things. It's really about what we call the incarnation. It simply means uh, God in the flesh, Jesus, representing the flesh before God the Father. It represents humility, the deity of Jesus. It fulfills prophecy out of Daniel chapter 7. This would be the last time that Jesus uses that phrase, son of man, when referring to himself. And then he talks about this glorification thing. And when we think about the glorification of Jesus, probably what we think about is, I don't know, his, his resurrection and ascension, that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father so he's glorified. That's part of it, but not for Jesus. For Jesus, glorification was the whole package. His betrayal was his glorification. His death on the cross was his glorification. His resurrection, definitely his glorification. His ascension, his glorification. And then the pouring out of his Holy Spirit is his 
glorification. So what does glorification mean? It means glory for the Father who glorifies the Son. Glory for the Father. Through the obedience of Jesus, He would glorify the Father. And when we're obedient to what Jesus commands us to do, love God and love others, we glorify God too. And then the Father glorifies the Son by getting Him through all of those things and then resurrecting Him and then ascending Him to His right hand. It's the greatest event in the history of humanity that we're going to be celebrating next weekend. But right now, there's a time of darkness for the disciples, a time of darkness for, and calamity because Christ is going to the cross, and he's got a lot of things on his heart. You would see at the cross, he would redeem the lost. He would destroy sin. He'd defeat Satan, and he would buy back our freedom he would be starting that plan that would bring about that new earth and that new restoration of the Garden of Eden at his second coming. I love how William Barclay put it. When he talks about the upper room, he says these words. He says, the glory of Jesus has come, and that glory is the cross. The tension is gone. Any doubts that remain that Jesus is the Messiah have been finally removed. Judas has gone out, and the cross, the cross is a certainty. The greatest glory in life is the glory which comes from sacrifice. Let me say that again. The greatest glory in life is the glory which comes from sacrifice. In any warfare, the supreme glory belongs not to those who survive, but to those who lay down their lives. You see, real love is about sacrifice. Shortly after this, Jesus would be praying that high priestly prayer in John 17. He'd say, Father, I've glorified you. Take care of my disciples. Help them love well. As I said, we, we glorify God when we love well, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's keep going, verse 33. Jesus continues. Little children, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Underline that because that's important. First of all, he's talking to his disciples and he says, little children, and he's not like saying, you bunch of stupid kids. It's not an ugly term. Little children, the Greek word is technia. It means dear and darling. And he's pulling out his Jewish rabbi card because in that time, rabbis would refer to their disciples as little children. And what he's doing is he's setting the scene for what's going to happen to them over the next couple of months. He says, where I'm going, you can't come. He's setting the scene for his departure, that he's going to be separated from them, and they would have several dark nights of the soul. And with that, we get a truth out of this teaching, and that truth is this. Some paths in life you have to walk alone. Some paths in life you have to walk alone. What do I mean by that? Well, I've got to be clear about something. First of all, when you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he takes up residence within your heart. He will never leave you nor forsake you, so you will never be alone. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You're never alone, but guess what? Sometimes in life, you don't have anyone else around you, especially in those dark nights of the soul. You go into that exam room, you're getting the very painful biopsy. You know it's going to be painful. Everybody has told you it's painful. Your church has prayed you up. Everybody's prayed around you. Uh, and you've talked to the chaplain right before you go in. And then all of a sudden, they're wheeling you down the hall. You get into the procedure room, and they do a bunch of stuff. And then they say, yeah, the, well, the team will be in here in a minute. And they leave. And it's just you on your back 
counting ceiling tiles. You've got to walk that path alone. It's been several years since your spouse died. You were with your spouse for so many years. She was the love of your life. Funeral happened. People visited occasionally, checked in on you, but now it's a few years later. And as you're there at 2 o'clock in the morning, you wake up and you reach over just to touch your spouse and all you feel is that hole in the bed. You've got to walk that path alone. You're a woman of character, honor, integrity, and faith. Fantastic leader. And you work for a guy who's not. In fact, he, he's doing some things that are unethical, so you wisely pull him aside, away from others, and you say, hey, listen, and you call him out on it. And with that, he decides vengeance will be his. He tears apart your reputation. Everybody's snickering and talking about you. You're soon to lose your job. You have to walk the path alone. But we always have to remember, when Christ is in your heart, you are never alone. But it's always, always wise to have strong faith before you hit those valleys of the shadow of death experiences because we're all going to hit them multiple times in our lives. So Jesus lays out three hard facts to the disciples. He's soon to leave. They'll seek him, but they won't find him. And then number three, they can't go with him. And it rocked their worlds. So he's got to give them some fresh wind and some fresh fire. So he's now going to give them a command. Look at verses 34 and 35. If you memorize anything out of today's teaching, memorize these two verses. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus was giving them fresh wind and fresh fire, and with that, he's giving them an expectation with an understanding. It's an expectation with an understanding. The expectation is that they love well, but there was an understanding here. They wouldn't get it. They're not going to get it as he goes to the cross. They're not going to get it when he's resurrected. They're not going to get it until he pours out his Holy Spirit. Then they're going to connect the dots. They would need to love one another well, and they'd be put to the test. It's as if he was standing in front of Peter and John, and he's saying, Peter, you're a leader. You're an action guy. I love you so much. John, you're a feeler. You're a great leader. You two are two opposite ends of the spectrum, and I need you to not compare ministries. I need you to come together and love one another. Simon the zealot, Matthew the tax collector, you're totally different people, and I need you to come together and love one another. Andrew the faithful, Thomas the doubter, you're totally different, but I need you to come together and love one another. It's as if he's saying to Cornwall Church, Cornwall Church, you've got so much diversity within your church and that's awesome, but I need you to come together and I need you to love one another. Love is the new law and its impact is in verse 35. So let's go back to verse 35. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Underline that. We got to talk about that. You are my disciples if, if you love, have love for one another. Well, I love discipleship. I love disciple making. I love disciple reproduction. It's what we're all about here at Cornwall Church. If you are, are attending a church where they're not about being disciples and making, making disciples, you need to go to a different church. It's a command from Jesus. We've got to go and make disciples. 
And with disciple making, there's a doing and a being piece. And I don't know about you guys, but I see often in my life, I do one really well and the other poorly. Let me talk about the doing piece, because I, I like to do things. You know, I, I, I love scripture memorization. I love spending time in God's word. I, I love spending time in prayer, uh, giving all those things, serving, those things that I can check a box. I love doing that, those doing things. But when it comes to the being thing, of just sitting in the lap of God for five minutes, I'm like, oh, squirrel. Kip, don't, don't think about anything. I'm thinking about something. Stop thinking. I'm thinking. I have a hard time being. And there are those of you here who do really well at the being piece, and that's awesome. And you're like, I don't really need to spend time in God's Word, and then all of a sudden your life's a train wreck because you're making some decisions that don't align with God's Word. And then for me, I, I make my life a train work because I'm not listening to the voice of God. There's a doing thing and a being thing, and they go together. And love is the glue, the glue that holds them together. You see, we can do all those doing things well or those being things well, but if there's not love holding them together, we're going to fail. The Apostle Paul talks about that. So what I want to do is we're going to come back to this upper room discourse, and I want us to go to the love chapter of the Bible, the great love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, I'll bring you back to those wedding days because we're going to share a passage that is often read in weddings. So it's 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth. Uh, the church in Corinth has had some problems. They've let the culture enter their church. Uh, the culture is a rough culture. It's, it's an anything-goes culture. It's like the Las Vegas. Corinth is like the Las Vegas of the Greco-Roman world. So Paul writes to them about this crazy little thing called love. Let's look at this, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look at the first four verses. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, underline that. Every time you see that phrase, underline it. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He says, if I do all those good doing things or being things, but I don't have love, speaking in the, those heavenly voices, but I don't have love, it doesn't matter. I'm nothing. And then he kind of hits a weird part. He talks about gongs and cymbals. What would happen in the city of Corinth, they had these shrines on every corner. And the shrines were for these little G gods. And a whole bunch of them were shrines to a goddess of sex. And so what you would do is you would go into the temple you would buy your prostitute, where it be a, a male or a female, boy or a girl, or a combination therein. And before you would consummate the act, you'd pick up a gong and you'd bang the gong. And then with that, that would supposedly arouse the little G goddess. And what Paul's saying is, if you're doing godly things not motivated without love, not motivated by love, it's just like that. It's just idol worship. He continues on, verses 5 through 8, and this is like, these are those wedding verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now, look what it does, though. Look what it does. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It all comes back to love. And what he's describing is a person. And that person is Jesus. I struggle with pride a lot, and sometimes when I get prideful, I got to throw my name in there instead of love. You know, Kip is patient, Kip is kind. Yeah, right, take me off my Prozac and throw me in Seattle traffic on a Friday night. I'm none of that. I can't live it out. And my guess is most of us here can't live it out if we put our names in the place of that. But Jesus can, and it all comes back to the cross. It all comes back to the cross. Jesus was constantly thinking about the cross. It was love that motivated him to the cross, and that's where he would glorify the Father. So let's go back to John 13. Let's look at verse 35 again, because this is truly the impact of a Christ follower. He says, by this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So loving one another was not actually a new command. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, love one another as you would love yourselves. But the great thing about Jesus, he raises that bar. Think about it. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. He raises the bar consistently. If you, if you look at another person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And he does so here with love. You see, it's a newer and higher standard. Jesus' love is a newer and higher standard. It's ratified by his blood, and it fulfills a prophecy found in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God says through Ezekiel to his people, I will cleanse you of your filth. I will take away that crazy heart of yours. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh, flesh means malleable. It, 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 it can be transformed, and we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, and our heart becomes transformed through Jesus. It's demonstrated on the cross and it's fulfilled at the resurrection. Do you see how important this upper room discourse is? As you're stepping into Holy Week, as you're seeing what Jesus is going to go through, what his disciples would go through, but he's not finished. He's not finished. He has to show them his love. I love how Gary Thomas put this. He says, without the engine of love, we will be lackadaisical about our faith and everything that matters. It's demonstrated on the cross. It's fulfilled at the resurrection. One of the things I love that Jesus does is he gives us the ability to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. I was talking to a friend of mine a few weeks ago, a dear friend of mine. He's an older gentleman. He's in his upper 70s, and, and he's had a rough life. And he is just such a great man of God and such a good man. Just love this guy. And he said, hey, Kip, what are you preaching on in a couple weeks? And I said, I'm going to preach on the virtue of love. He said, hey, can I tell you a cool story about love? Like, I'm all ears. He didn't know it was going to be a sermon illustration. And so I said, yeah, tell me about it. He said, you know, when I was a kid, my dad used to beat my mom to a pulp in front of all of us kids. And when he was done with her, he'd take his turn on us. And quite frankly, when he died, I rejoiced at that. And I did not, I would not forgive him. I was going to hold this over his head. And I realized he died a long, long time ago. I realized that the enemy had a grip on my heart and that I needed to forgive this guy. So I did. I just said, I, I forgive you. You're not going to hold this over me any longer. In the name of Jesus, I forgive you. He said, you would not believe the weight that was taken off my shoulders and the freedom that I have because of that. You can't do that on your own. 
You can't chant that away. You can't hold on to a bunch of beads and think through that. No, it's the love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that allows you to do that. Jesus seals our hearts and our destiny with his blood. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. You know, we talk a lot here about this word love. Uh, you know, I've, I've preached before, and I think Pastor Bob has also preached before on the four main Greek words used for love. We're not going to go into that. But the highest form of love, the Greek word is agape love. It's unconditional love. It's love that comes from within. It's a sacrificial love. And this word, agape love, the first 12 chapters of the book of John is used 12 times. But from 13 on, it's used 44 times. It's important to Jesus. It's important to us. So back to our story. Peter's now going to step in here. I love Peter. In good Peter fashion, he's going to be bold. Uh, verse 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. So he's repeating again what he said in verse 33. But you will follow later. I love Peter so much because he's just real. He's very direct. Uh, I, I, I have a lot in common with Peter, not like the holy Peter on the other side of the ascension in the Holy Spirit, but on you know, this side of the cross, really impulsive. I say things I shouldn't. My wife always says that I've never had an unspoken thought, and that is so true. Peter was confused here. He couldn't figure out what Jesus was talking about. So in boldness, Peter just asks the question, where are you going? Look at verses 37 and 38. He's going to be even bolder. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, oh, really, will you, Peter? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. I love Peter for many reasons. But here, he underestimates his weaknesses. He's like, I'm going to go with you, Lord. I'm going to go with you. I'll be there with you. And we don't know why Peter threw down the, so hard there. It's speculation here, speculation from me. Remember, just minutes before this, Jesus had given the nod to Judas for Judas to leave. And the disciples didn't know that it was Judas that was going to be, betray him until shortly after this when this mob shows up to arrest Jesus and Judas betrays him with a kiss. Maybe, just maybe, Peter is saying, to the other disciples. I'm not, I'm not the guy who's going to betray. I will give my life for you. And with that, we get a truth. And the truth is this. You cannot have life change without your love being challenged. You cannot have life change without your love being challenged. Because we know the rest of the story. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times in the Gospel of Luke. It says that on that third time, Jesus looks Peter in the eye and Peter weeps bitterly. Peter would fail the test when his love is challenged. Do you understand that, that his love would be put in the furnace of challenge? The furnace of challenge is where our faith is refined and our love grows. A great book I just read recently was from John MacArthur, and it's on the upper room. It's called, wait for it, here it comes, here it comes the upper room. It's creative, right? But it's a solid book on the upper room and everything that goes on there. And in it, he identifies four character flaws that Peter has before the ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Those, those flaws would be taken care of, but there were four flaws that Peter has, and I bet some of us have here too. First of all, Peter boasted too quickly. And we see that here, this here, I'm going to give my life for you. He underestimated 
his weaknesses. The second thing is, he prayed too little. Fast forward shortly after this, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was looking at Peter as a leader and wanted Peter to lead. And he says, Peter, James, and John, I need the three of you to stay awake. I need you guys to pray. And Peter and the boys fell sound asleep. The third thing is that he acted without thinking. He acted very impulsively. Think about it. Judas shows up with the mob, and sure enough, Peter pulls out a sword and whacks off the ear of the high servant or the high priest's servant. But last and definitely not least, he followed too far away. You know, we bang on Peter all the time, and he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he shows that you can biff it royally and be restored. And when Jesus is arrested, Peter at least follows. Most of the other disciples are long gone, but he followed too far away. Think about this. Early in Jesus' ministry, the boys are in a boat, and there's a storm on the water. Water's flowing everywhere. It's crazy. They're going to sink. And they see what they think is a ghost out in the horizon. And they look out there, and, 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 and they say, it's a ghost. And it's like, no, it's Jesus. Okay, Jesus, if that's you, Peter says, call me out to you. And we know the story. He steps out of the boat. He's walking on the water. And as long as he's focused on Jesus, water's coming around all over the place. It's a scary time. He's okay. But as soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus, what happens? He sinks. And the lesson for all of us is when we go through a difficult time, not only do we stay focused on Jesus and keep our eyes on Jesus, we stay close. We don't follow from a distance. See, you cannot have life change without your love being challenged. His love would be challenged and he'd fail the test. Well, as many of you know, I spent a lot of years in Korea. When, when I was in my nearly 30 years in the Army, uh, I spent almost a decade in Korea uh, with Korean special operations, doing a lot of fun things, and then uh, just living there with my family in our last uh, a couple assignments there. I love the Korean people. I love the Korean peninsula, the politics, everything that goes with it, and I've been a student of them for several decades. And when, uh, when I first came to Korea, the first time I came to Korea, I started studying up on the war. Uh, the, the war from 1950 to 1953. So this June is the 73rd anniversary of North Korea attacking South Korea in which hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of lives would be lost in this horrific conflict that is not at peace, that's still what's at what's called armistice, basically a state of war, a state of armistice. Well, early on in the war, uh, one of my heroes I want to talk about, I want to tell his story. I got a picture of him right here. His name is Chaplain Emil Capon. He was a Catholic priest, and he's a great godly man because he's from Kansas, first of all. <laughs> Rock Chalk Jayhawk. I'm from Kansas, for those of you who don't know. Um, but on top of that, he was an amazing soldier and a phenomenal chaplain. And I want to tell his story because he shows what this is, that you cannot have life change without love being challenged. Served in World War II as a chaplain, the end of World War II in the Burmese campaign. He stays in Asia for a while, uh, comes back to the States, and then he's called back to Asia. North Korea attacks South Korea, and at that time, he's sent onto the Korean Peninsula to be a chaplain for a U.S. Army infantry unit. Uh, they're pushing the North Koreans up to the Yalu River, which is on the Chinese border. And when they do, uh, things get out of control, and the North Koreans, and uh, the, the enemy surrounds the U.S. forces there. Uh, they're given the, the order to retreat. He refuses to retreat because he wants to stay with this group of men, 60 men who have been surrounded. 
So he steps in there knowing that he's going to be captured. And that's when all hell breaks loose in his life. He would serve several months at the brutal prison camp of Pyeongtang in North Korea. He would eventually die there of, of dysentery. But here's how he would show the love of Jesus. First of all, at Pyeongtang, he would trade his watch for a blanket. The winters of 1950 through 1953 were some of the worst winters uh, on, in the history of the peninsula. And men would have frostbite, and so he traded his watch for a blanket, and, and with that blanket, he'd cut it up, and he'd make socks, and he would make gloves for the men with frostbite. So many of them had uh, gnarled up hands, they couldn't do anything, so he decided to set up his shop in the infirmary, and where he would pick the lice off of their heads. There's, dysentery was rampant there, and he would be the one who would simply wipe them because they couldn't use their arms. He would steal food from the prison facility and then give half of his food also to any of the men in that dispensary. And he would end up dying there shortly after that. Sixty years later, the Department of Defense would end up doing an investigation on him, not uh, that he did anything wrong. They were going to award him uh, posthumously the, the, the Medal of Honor, the highest award for valor. And so they finally found some of the men who were still alive living at, at today. This was back in 2016. Uh, they found some men who were alive, and, and they interviewed them. One man had a particularly hard time explaining what happened to him. You see, when the enemy surrounded Chaplain Capon and the men, this man had broken his leg. And an enemy soldier is ready to execute this man because he's going to slow him down. They've got an 80-mile march to Pyeongtang. And Chaplain Capon simply stood in front of the, the rifle, said, not today. And this man of five feet nine and about 120 pounds with change in his pockets throws this guy on his back and carries him the 80 miles to Pyeongtang. Dallas Willard once said these words. He said, a carefully cultivated heart will, assisted by the grace of God, foresee, forestall, or transform most of the painful situations before which others stand like helpless children, saying, why, God, why? When I read Dallas Willard, it usually takes me like five or six times before I understand it. And in Kip speak, this is what Dallas Willard is saying. You got to have your faith intact before you hit those hard times. Because all day you can scream, why God, why? But God's probably not going to answer that. The best answer, the best thing to scream is, God, I don't understand this, but you're a good God and you're sovereign. Walk with me through this valley. And that's what happened with Chaplain Capone. The way he loved in the worst and most dire situations spoke of his faith. His love was challenged. The more he was beaten, the more he was tortured, the more he loved, the more he loved, the more he was beaten, and the more he was tortured. He had that carefully cultivated heart that transformed a horrific situation into something that had meaning for others. Do not miss this. So often in life, we want that divine purpose. We want to make that impact. Bob Buford wrote a great book called Halftime, and it talks about how you can have a life of success in the first part of your life, but that second half really needs to be a life of significance. If you want a divine significance, it starts first with surrender and then with repentance. 
turning away from your past and going that godly path that Pastor Bob talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about penitence. And it's more surrender. And it's more repentance. Being a disciple is hard. And people don't tell you that. But it's hard. But if you want to have divine significance, understand this. It's lived out in the mundane of life. And then you're thrown in the furnace. And when you're thrown in the furnace, that's where it's refined. You see, you cannot be changed without a love challenge. The way you love will reveal how you meet that challenge. You want divine significance, be ready for a fight, but fight well because he will never leave you nor forsake you. Let me land this plane. Back to Peter. His life would change in a fourth meal. That fourth meal of Jesus. Remember, each meal gets more intense and they're all tied together. First meal, the meal to the 5,000. That's to Jewish people. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. Second one, more intense. It's to non-Jewish people. He's saying, I'm the bread of life. Get ready. I came for Jews and Gentiles. Uproar happens. Third meal with the 11 in the upper room. He goes to the cross. He dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. We celebrate that next week. And before he ascends at the right hand of the, the Father, he's got some work he's got to do with one man in particular. He's got to have one more meal. And it's a breakfast on the beach, the only breakfast recorded in all of Scripture or in all of, uh, of the gospel accounts with Jesus. And Jesus is going to ask him three questions because how many times did Peter disavow Jesus? Three times. Three questions, all gaining in intensity with the word of love. Peter, do you love me? He used a simple word of love for that. Peter says, of course, Master, I love you. Well, then, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I'm talking about a, a deeper type of love. <laughs> Master, of course I love you. Tend my flock. And then lastly, he uses that agape word, unconditional sacrificial love. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's offended. Of course I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter is now restored. And Peter would be put through the furnace of faith and he would answer it in spades in an amazing way. Tradition has it that he was crucified upside down because he felt being crucified the same way Jesus was would be irreverent, so they crucified him upside down. A new love challenge and he'd meet that in a great way, which leads me to you. This week, I guarantee you, you're gonna be challenged every single day and the challenge, you're gonna be challenged to love well, to post something demeaning on social me media or point to the one who gives us meaning. To turn the other cheek or to give the middle finger. To respond with pride and hate or respond with truth and love. To simply plant a flag and say, I'm right and I'm going to be right by golly. Or say, you know what? I'm not going to be right today. I'm just going to be righteous. I'm going to step back and walk away. So your challenge is this. When faced with a difficult decision like that, choose love. Choose love. Remember, many, many years ago, they had those WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? Simply ask, what would Jesus do? Again, it's cliche, but living it out is tough. Because think about Jesus. Sometimes, when he was in a contentious place, he simply walked away. Not today. I'm not going to talk about this today. Sometimes, he spoke tough truths, but he always spoke them in love. And get this one, 
Jesus limited himself in his ministry. He didn't heal everyone he came into contact with. He chose who he would heal. And for us, what we've got to understand is we have to set up healthy boundaries sometimes between us and others. But no matter what, we have to love well. And he especially did that, that sacrificial love from the cross. Think about this. He steps down from heaven and walks the dirt. It's the incarnation. And he did it because of his love. He went through extreme difficulties those 33 years on earth, and he did it because of his love. He went through six sham trials, was beaten and tortured and beaten and tortured because of his love. Then he slammed onto the cross. And when he slammed onto the cross, he doesn't call down curses on the ones who put him there. He simply says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do because of what? His love. And then when he's on that cross, and God pours out all of his wrath on his shoulders, all of our sin, past, present, and future, God does the unthinkable. He turns his back on him and walks away. He separates himself completely from Jesus. Some paths you have to walk alone. Guess what? Guess what? Jesus understands that. It's the only time in history that God would do that, that the God the Father and God the Son would be separated completely. And that had to happen so Jesus could take on all of our sin, so he could say, been there, done that. And when he does that, he screams those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we tend to focus on that last part, why have you forsaken me? Look, Jesus is calling down curses on God himself. No, he's not. Go to those first two words repeated twice. My God, my God, my is a term of endearment. It's a term of love. God was still his at the worst time in the history of humanity. And he's still yours. In whatever valley you walk through, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's the most important virtue. The virtue of love. Chuck Swindoll would say these words. He said, Christ's love was unconditional in its, in its expression, unselfish in its motive, unlimited in its benefits. A new command I give you, Jesus says to Cornwall Church, and it's to love. By this, by this Cornwall Church, all people will know that you are disciples of Jesus. Love well.